On the Culture File debate this time, the spirit of the harp, and not just the heavenly sound, but the immense footprint of the plucked instrument on our environment. From a symbol of a lost world to a code for national resistance, from a brand for alcoholic imperialism to an actual wood, steel and possibly nylon musical instrument, the harp has a status in these parts that nothing else quite matches. How did we get here? How did this relatively low-tech apparatus wind its strings round every aspect of Irish life? Are the harp strings, which inspire everything from bridge design to government stationery, a stairway to heaven, or prison bars from which we do well to escape? Here to help us understand the harp, somewhat belatedly, 100 years after its adoption as a national symbol, is our culture file court of harpers and scholars. Dr Linda King is one of the scholars. She specialises in design and cultural history and was one of the editors of Ireland Design and Visual Culture Negotiating Modernity, which looked at the interplay between designed objects used by various Irish governments to buttress their aims. Ashling Lyons is an award-winning musician and composer from County Clare, whose debut album Ashdare came out last year, leading delighted listeners on a journey into her harp music in tunes, traditional and contemporary, by herself in music inspired by everything from her late father to the dreams of her dog. Mary Louise O'Donnell is a musicologist and a musician who is the author of, among much, much else, Ireland's Harp, The Shaping of Irish Identity. And of course, she plays the harp too, often in tandem with her sister. And Cormac de Barra is in the final window. He's a third generation harper, taught the instrument by his grandmother. As well as working as a TV presenter, his harp has been heard in the company of acts from Hazel O'Connor to Moya Brennan. And he's just been on tour with a harp which, um, you know, has got to be good for the abs. Hello, <laughs> Cormac. Hey, look, that's very true. Well, I do the abs. <laughs> Let's keep the feet, get the, get the steps in anyway, carrying. <laughs> OK, so I've been suggesting here that the harp is everywhere around us, you know, that it's permeated into every part of our lives. So I'd like to start by testing that theory. I wonder if I could ask, where are the harps nearest you? And what kind of harp is it? Extra points for precision. So, Ashling. Um Well, the, the actual harp that's nearest me is uh, just in my car, actually, just outside where I'm recording. Um, so I'm, I'm a music teacher and um, musician and, and composer, but I was teaching in the Irish World Academy at the University of Limerick today. So um, and also playing a lunchtime concert with a band I play with, um, Harpano, with a handpan, actually. But um, yeah, so the harp is, is just outside, actually. Mary Louise O'Donnell, where's your nearest harp? So I'm sitting in a room with the harp that was made by my husband. My husband is a guitarist and he went back to Ballyferma College of Further Education two years ago to do a diploma there. It was largely to kind of get through the whole COVID period and the lockdowns. He wanted to kind of keep himself occupied. So one of the modules on that course is harp making. So in the first year, he produced a beautiful harp, which is sitting in our corner here. And there's a gorgeous tone off it. And uh, I love sitting and playing it. That's brilliant. Yeah. Linda King. I don't have an actual harp. Um, actually, I don't play any instruments at all, unfortunately. But I'm surrounded by a, a number of reproductions of harps because when I was doing 
my research for this piece, I was I was looking through um, a very famous book called The Rediscovery of Ireland's Past, the Celtic Revival, 1830 to 1930, which I'm sure few people on the panel would would uh, will know. It's by Jeanne Sheehy and it was published, I think, in 1980. And it's about the, the rise of cultural nationalism and how it was visualised. So I was flicking through that and I was coming across harps on the front of buildings, on jewellery, on bleak pottery. I have that in front of me. But also coincidentally, what came through the door was a leaflet for, I'm not going to mention the, the name of the organisation, but um, they're hosting a gathering to discuss um, issues, including United Ireland, and they're using the harp as a symbol of their um, organisation. So I thought that was very interesting in, in terms of just a, a, the, the most contemporary um, reproduction of the harp that I've come across. When you said came through the door there, I thought it might be one of those dread government letters. It, no, it's... no, nothing to do with the government, <laughs> but it is a piece of, uh, yes, junk mail that came through the door. So, Mary Louise O'Donnell, the thing about the harp, uh, you know, it, as we say, it's it's all around us, but it's not actually indigenous to Ireland as a, as an instrument. Although, you know, it seems pretty likely that there must have been some form of uh, plucked stringed instrument here. But do we have any idea of where the harp comes from? No, to be perfectly honest, Luke, we don't. I mean, there's all sorts of speculation that it may have come from Africa. Um, it may have come from uh, sort of around the area of Iran, Iraq, uh, what used to be called Persia, I suppose. Um, but we can't say for definite where it came from. We know that it's been played in Ireland in some shape or form for over a thousand years and probably a lot longer. And we do know that Irish harp is very distinctive, particularly the wire-strung Irish harp, which was very commonly played um, up until maybe the 17th century, and then it gradually started to die out. And we know that the harpers that played this particular type of harp were extremely skilled. They often studied for up to 15 years to learn um, repertoire, to learn how to compose, and to learn how to accompany the recitation of poetry. And they were renowned throughout Europe for their skills. Um, so we can say that for definite. But do we have some idea why it stuck the way it did, wherever it arrived from? We do because of the patronage system that operated in early Gaelic society. Amongst the chieftain's entourage, the, the poet or the fellow was the most important person, but the harper was next in terms of importance. So there was a great respect for for the arts, for culture in general in Gaelic society. And the harper was part of this kind of trio uh, or band, really, which included the filler who composed the poetry, the rakara or the reciter who performed the poetry and the harper that accompanied it. So the harper was an integral part of Gaelic society. And it was because of the patronage of Gaelic families that it it was sustained and perpetuated for so long, gradually towards maybe the end of the 16th, early 17th century, when the plantations and the lands were taken uh, from the Gaelic chieftains. Then that's gradually when you started to see the dismantling of Gaelic society and this gradual sort of dying away of that tradition of wire-strung harp performance. I wonder in terms of, of the appearance of the instrument, Linda King, was there something about the form as a design that again makes it stick in the way that other instruments haven't haven't had that effect what's happening in the, in the shape and its elaboration 
there's a couple of things going on. I think that it's a distinctive visual form and also it's a symbol that is you know, very closely identified with Ireland. So I think on a number of levels, it creates this notion of difference. And that was extremely powerful within the within the context of the 19th century and the rise of cultural nationalism and the desire for separatism, that it enabled um, a variety of different agents to identify themselves as uniquely Irish. So whether that was attached to jewellery or is attached to pottery or it was a motif within paintings, it was a very, very potent symbol of Irish difference. Is there something about the fact that it it is a visual image of a sound? That sounds like it might uh, have a kind of potency that's unusual. I think so. And as far as I know, it's the only country that has a musical instrument as a national symbol. Um, I certainly, I was involved in a project recently with a number of other European countries and person was putting together a little package of, of national symbols and every country had, you know, animals they could identify as distinctly um, emanating from their own culture. But with, with Ireland, it was it was much harder. And they settled on uh, the harp as, as the symbol of distinctiveness for, for Ireland and the one that was most recognised by European partners. So I thought that was quite interesting. There's a degree of sophistication in comparison to using an animal as an image or as, as a symbol of your nation, isn't it? It, it, it is a cultural artefact. It, it bespeaks uh, sophisticated social organisation. Yes, and it also, um, it, it, it also, as you mentioned, is a way of concretizing something that is experiential. So it's very hard to uh, visualise music, but when you have the musical instrument, that becomes a lot easier. Mary-Louise O'Donnell, tell us about, uh, we we assume there that we know that that it's bound up with Irish identity. So how did the the harp find itself so uh, closely involved with helping Irish people see themselves? What, What part did it play in building Irish identities? Well, it's it's interesting because I suppose the stereotypical symbol we always assume is Irish, but it's not Irish in origin at all. In fact, um, the earliest use of a harp to represent Ireland originates in the 13th century. And it's basically a gold harp on a blue background, which was uh, used on a French roll of arms to represent the arms of the King of Ireland. So the earliest use of the harp as a symbol is actually Anglo-Norman or Norman in context. And the reason I think that the harp was associated with Ireland, particularly in Europe, is because of the reputation of the harpers. There was a, a Welsh cleric who came over to Ireland. His name was Geraldus Cambrensis, and he accompanied the English Prince John. And they basically did, I suppose, a recce, really, of the spoils that were to be gained. And Geraldus Cambrensis wrote a book afterwards called Topographia Hiberniae, in which he basically mocked and derided every aspect of Ireland and Irish and Gaelic culture. The only redeeming feature or fact that he could find in terms of of Gaelic culture was the harp music, the music of the harpers, because he had never heard any music or any musicians playing in the manner that they did. And I think this this music, this, this the music that he heard really surprised him because he couldn't understand how what appeared on the surface to be a very unsophisticated civilization or, or, or group of people, how they had a music and a, a, a style of performance which was so advanced. 
So I think gradually throughout Europe, Ireland became known as the land of the Harpers. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the 13th century and in the, the centuries that followed, the harp became the symbol of Ireland because it just, when, when people thought of Ireland, they thought of the harp and the harp music. Cormac, how does the harp's presence as a visual symbol feed into playing? Does it? Does it? Can it even? Around Ireland for the last, like, the last 10 years is different, but say when I, like 10 years ago, up to 10 years ago, if you arrive somewhere with a harp, Quite often people come up to you afterwards going, the first time I've seen a harp live. So the sim- what it became this symbol, or, or this, the, the, this disjoint, or the disconnect between how, you know, uh, how celtic it was as, as, a, as a symbol of Ireland in so many ways, but, but, not, but nobody actually heard one played for so long. Now that's changing now, but I, for up to like maybe 20 years ago anyway, for sure, the amount of times you'd hear, just invariably every time you did a concert somewhere, or you, they, they, somebody would come up saying, this is the first time I've ever heard a harp played live. In my case, it was more a family figure my, 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 I grew up with the harp around me all the time. I was lucky that it was around me from, from day one. Like my first ever memory in the in life, nearly is, is hiding behind the harp. And my my grandmother had a visitor. Mary O'Hara came to visit my grandmother, and I hid behind the harp. She, this tall stranger came into the house. I was three. It was my, my first memory ever. So it's I've always had the harp. Harp for me, first and foremost, was part of the, the, the fabric of, of home, you know, and then you, you, you realise, you know, you, you can be proud of it for so many other, I'd, pride was the other, I'd feel proud of it, you know, that, you, that you're playing the national instrument. You're kind of an ambassador for your country in some ways, it was, was how it felt in those days. I wonder, Ashling Lyons, does, does that strike a note with you? What, what are the things that, uh, that draw you to the harp? I mean, I, I guess maybe not the symbolic value, but what, what are the possibilities of the instrument that, that draw players or draws you, other than the convenience and ease of use obviously yeah well I think um even more than I suppose the you know the actual look of the instrument I remember it was the the sound that first drew me to um the harp um I, I think I was attending uh, tin whistle lessons at, at the time and I I heard this sound that I had never heard before and I, I went running through the house to to see what it was. I, I was probably about seven. You know, the memory is so strong still, um, this sound I had never heard. So, I, like, I was attracted to um, this very unusual sound, obviously beautiful sound, but... Say something about how you experienced the sound, would you? Well, I think... I think it has a very therapeutic uh, effect. And even still, I suppose, I've been playing for... Um, for going on 20 years and it's still a very calming and um it's a it's a special sound i i still find um you know it, even just to sit down and play a couple of tunes or to you know compose a couple of tunes um it, it's it's um i find it mes- i find it mesmerizing mesmerizing is a great word <laughs> but yeah you, you watch people play i think my first like, i think it's the same as actually the, the, you see this instrument that and it, this sound emanates from, and you see people's hands move, and you, this it's it's a different, you know, it's not run of the mill. It 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 has a particular quality. I think the reason it's used in in harp ther- music therapy in any way is that it has a, a calming or a meditative uh, effect in some ways on people. It seems to have more. I mean, the Americans have done a lot of research or a lot of a lot of practice in that in that field. But I, I it just seems that it seems to kind of calm people down. Uh, in and I I know I use it myself as like, I remember saying to Hazel O'Connor on tour once. I was like. He's like, I don't get this. She, she was in with Harry Krishna for a while, so I was like, I don't get the, you know, the, the, the beads and the chanting. And she goes, it's all very well for you, Corbo. You sit down behind the harp and you engage all your senses and you play this and, it, and, you, and you repeat again what you know. And it, 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 not everyone has that. So I think it, people are drawn to that. I was going to say, I think it's also to do with the fact that when the harp is such a physical instrument, when you're it's ra- pressed against your body, 
it resonates throughout your whole body. So it feels like you're at one with the instrument in a way that I don't think you are with other instruments. So it's it's a joy to play from that point of view because you can feel the music actually moving yes, through you. Yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah. Can I just offer, because I, I don't play any instruments, so I'm looking at this from a totally different perspective, but... But for me, apart from the sound of it, which is beautiful, um, it's so elegant. And I think Mary Louise's point there of, of just the physicality of it, just to see people play and the stretch in their arms. It's similar to me anyway. Um, it, you know, it's similar to playing a piano, that you're stretching yourself out over the instrument, which that, that isn't the case with other musical instruments. And there's something just very, very elegant about that. What about the, 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 you know, this quality that we're talking about, that there's something, um, Linda, there's, that there's something mesmeric about the instrument and it has these sort of celestial associations. Somehow that has got to appear in its symbolic value as, a, as, a, as an image, as a form. It, and yet it, it, that's not necessarily the, what accrues around uh, Irish use of it. Um, I, I think maybe in an Irish context, it's because so many representations of the harp are based on the Brian Baru harp, which is a beautiful object and it's beautifully um, decorated. So it, it, it is a it is a beautiful it is a beautiful form. Um, and I think maybe that there's an element of that that has made it so potent within the kind of iconography of of Irish culture. I mean, it's it, it's it's an object like maybe the Tara brooch or the Arda chalice, that, that Brian Brew harp that is particularly beautiful, that resonates with a lot of people. And then that becomes simplified as a form and then replicated across a variety of different, different contexts. Mary Louise, um, we have a, a, a male harper and a female harper here, but over time, um, that, that, that sort of the balance of that has changed. And we are kind of aware of this sort of the medieval Ireland and, the, and as you've spoken about there, the prestige of harpers who were mostly male. How did that change happen, that, that it became uh, more associated with women playing it? There was a kind of a turn in the 19th century. And I suppose it's important to remember that in the 18th century, the harp was more important as a symbol rather than as a tradition of music, musical performance. In the early 18th century, you had um, Carolyn, who was like the, the most well-known of all the harper composers. But by the end of the 18th century, the harp's musical voice was kind of fading and it was really more important as a symbol. So particularly political movements like the United Irishmen, they embraced the harp symbol. And it wasn't this this kind of harp symbol that, that Linda has referred to from the 19th century. is It was what was called a winged maiden harp, which was the symbol of the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, essentially. They adopted it and they included it on their insignia with the motto, which is new, new strong and shall be heard. And they made this bold decision to remove the crown from on top of the harp. And that became a very strong political statement. We know from our history that the United Irishmen's Rebellion was a failure. But in some ways, it wasn't. The seeds for political activism were sown in the 18th century and they were transferred into the 19th century. So what you get in the 19th century is this extreme patriotism, particularly in the first two decades. And it's centred almost entirely around the harp. So you have harps on flags, you have harps on glass, you have harps on furniture. You even have... um, uh, Poets and uh, and writers like Thomas Moore and Sidney Owenson 
using the metaphor of the harp in their songs and in their um, in their writings and the literature, etc. So it's very prominent. You also have in the early 19th century this change from wire strung harp to a newly invented type of harp, which was strung with gut, which was called a portable Irish harp. And this harp was advertised, this harp was made by John Egan, a very well-known harp maker from Dublin, but it was advertised and promoted as a wonderful accompaniment to the voice. And it was very much marketed at young ladies. And what you have in the course of the 19th century, you have kind of almost two parallel traditions where the wire-strung harp, which had been male-dominated, continues, kind of plods along. But there's this new tradition of um, what we call modern Irish harp playing, of portable Irish harp playing, which was entirely female-dominated. And that gains strength as we go through the 19th century and into the 20th century then as well. And just, I suppose, it's it's quite inter- interesting to, to think about the harp, how it used to be perceived and it had, you know, that whole notion of elegance and indeed the symbol still is quite, you know, it's it's gentle and, and a, a quite a soft looking kind of symbol. But um, I think even the, the music that people would play on the harp, I think nowadays, even for Irish harpers, maybe that's changing a little bit and... Um, I think there's sort of a, a stigma that the harp is, you know, um, I've I've often been at at places and it's oh it's so it's so lovely to look at and, um, you know you'd get all these words like cute and beautiful and gorgeous, the music is changing and it, it can be more um rhythmic and more gusto can be found in the tunes and I I think that's what a lot of maybe the Irish players now and Scottish and maybe Harpers that I'm I I'm not familiar with either but um I think it's play, playing the dance tunes the Irish dance tunes and getting rhythm into the left hand and and uh you know really playing out um to kind of I suppose that that whole stigma. Let me see now how I phrase this. <laughs> um, not that not that far off. As a as a fourteen fifteen year old, I told nobody in school that I played the harp. The entire uh, repertoire of living tradition. The 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 only living performance of harp in in like from nineteen twenty to nineteen fifty fifty five would would have been also accompanying a songs with the harp. But it would have been the repertoire of Irish language songs mostly, rather than the nineteenth century. Uh, part you know the the genteel songs of the nineties. So there was an absolute. There was a you'd get kind of laughed at. That was the prevailing attitude toward harp players in the in the nineteen through the nineteen sixties, seventies, eighties. You know. But sorry, Cormac, wasn't a lot of that to do with the fact that the Irish harping tradition kind of was more associated with the aristocracy, the Gaelic society? Do you know that it always had a kind of an air of being different to the regular traditional instruments? Absolutely. What well, the thing is, the revival of the Irish harp in in the twentieth century was. Based on this, trying to reclaim this uh, this uh, aristocratic or you know uh, high brow or high class status, and that would by by definition or by extension you know uh, differentiate or or separate itself from the the lower the lower classes. So there is that. But in terms, I'm just I'm talking as a musician who, who like as as a as a kid playing it, you you might you might be trying something new or different, and you still get laughed at because of, so as in that that attitude or that the the um the perception. Exactly, it came from as you say. It came from that. It was trying to be revived as this kiln and whistle or the music of the, the of the of the nobility. Well, I think as you know, Mary Louise has as as you know really interestingly has has outlined that um you know right right up through until the the eighteenth nineteenth century the harp was 
um, becoming, I suppose, had become extremely recognisable as a symbol um, of Irish um, of Irish identity. So by the time it came to the foundation of the state in 1922, it was probably... I would imagine there was many symbols that were that were up for discussion as to what was going to be the you know the the, the one that the the government of Ireland or the free state were going to use. Yeah. Um, there was a competition from the plough or a, a certain type of lily and that kind of thing. Yeah, and um, and also you know the, the the shamrock as well. I mean, you know, by the time we get to the twentieth century, I mean, the, there is the the checklist of of symbols <laughs> of of national identity: round towers, wolfhound, sunburst, shamrock, Kathleen Hulahan. You know, there's and and the harp um but it but it's interesting that that is the one that was chosen um the irish uh, the free state they they had to reverse the the way the harp was depicted because guinness had already copyrighted the harp facing to the right so free state had to have a harp that was facing the other way to the left um and they were both based allegedly around the brian baru harp um that's held in in trinity college the shape of that particular harp it's really interesting that guinness as a company put put the first harp on a bottle um in 1862 and had registered it as a trademark by 1876 so that notion of registering your trademark so nobody else could use it in a very particular way i mean how far ahead was that in terms of thinking i mean that is that's really a 20th century concept that's not a that's not a, a mid 19th century concept turns out turns out you could get round it by flipping the harp i don't think you'd get away with that with a logo today would you <laughs> No, I, I think I think you would be under far more scrutiny. Yeah, just flipping something around, just listening to, to uh, particularly the examples that Mary Louise is 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 talking about. I mean, um, with my other hat on, I sit on the board of the National Museum of Ireland, and a lot of the harps that have been referenced um, there, John Egan's harp. The, there's some harps by him up in up in um, the National Museum of Ireland Decorative Arts and History at Collins Barracks, as is the state seal, which is the um, precursor to the symbol of the free state. So the, the great seal of Sairstot Erin, which dates to about 1925, was actually designed by Archibald McGugan, the museum's first photographer, and he later became curator of musical instruments and watercolours. So he was obviously very invested in the harp from quite a way back. But what I think is in, is interesting about that, you know, in, in particular, is that not just the not just the image, but it was actually cast at Royal Mint in London. And there's an assumption that, you know, once the free state was established, that anything to do with Britain was absolutely, you know, discarded. But when it came to the pragmatics of having the state seal cast, it it was the it was the Royal Mint who actually obliged. So that's on view up in the National Museum uh, Decorative Arts and History at Collins Barracks also. I'm researching a PhD at the moment on, on, on the revival of the harp in the, the, to the 20s and the 50s in terms of, and my grandmother and her, her sister Maureen were pivotal in that in, in a certain way. My, she, my Rogine taught uh, me, but my granddad Maureen taught Mary O'Hara and I, that, whole, that ilk from Sion Hill from whence all those singing harpists came in the 50s. But, but one article I found, 1936 in the Irish Times, there was a reference, one, a one column inch article on the Sherrod sisters and the O'Shea sisters, my grandmother, and they were referred to as one of the, of the mainly 10 or 11 in the entire free state following the cult of the Irish harp. So the, 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 the perception of the harp back then was that it was a cult. But, and this is, in the, this is the paper of record. So by 1936, you have this, you're looking at uh, the, the, the 
Free State was founded and all of the symbol might be there, but the actual how it's described in the pre- in the public press is as a, a, a cult. As you say, these things that aren't within our control or things that we might not, as musicians, maybe know a whole lot about. I think we have to um, think about the music itself and um, the the huge culture and the tradition that we're coming from and um, all the musicians who've gone before us and play the music that was there, but also think about uh, being musicians in in this time, you know, and to be playing music of, of the time as well as as you know, to preserve the music that has always been there. And also in terms of composition to, you know, to be inspired by maybe what is happening around us now. And that's, that's in keeping with the, I mean, the Harpers were always inspired by the the, the fashion of Europe and, you know, Carlin's time was, was Baroque music and they and the, these Harpers who were composers as well, that, that they took in what they liked. And that was, that's, I think it's one of the most pivotal elements of, of Gaelic Irish culture in, in also the, the poetry took on the amour courtois of the French a language and we and then so the Irish language had no problem taking in what they suit and and the, even the types of tunes and you have the polkas and you have the reeds you have the you have the hornpipes they they didn't originate here but we liked them so we took them in and that's been that's been the case for for centuries so I think that's that's brilliant to see that the Ashing saying the same thing now still well hopefully that will carry on that's where we're going to uh, leave the harp this time on the culture file debate I want to thank our fine harpeggio of Ashling Lions Cormac Debarra Mary Louise O'Donnell and Linda King for the harp update i feel like it's new strung and shall be heard just not tonight so bye now bye everyone bye 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 bye